want to begin by talking about a very interesting story in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 12, we have this great miracle that God did, and it seems like nobody believes that God really did a miracle. It's kind of an interesting situation because in Acts chapter 12, you have the apostle Peter is in jail for preaching the gospel. And he's not just in regular jail, he's in jail and he's probably going to be killed because he preached the gospel. So everybody's a little bit concerned because already James has been killed for preaching the gospel, and Stephen has been stoned for preaching the gospel, so the handwriting's pretty much on the wall what's going to happen to Peter. But everybody's praying really hard for Peter. Peter's praying, all the other followers of Jesus are in somebody's house, and they're praying for Peter. And what happens? An angel comes in the middle of the night, tiptoes into Peter's jail cell, well, I guess he doesn't tiptoe because the angel comes, lights up the entire room with the presence of God. The angel touches Peter. Suddenly the chains fall off Peter. Next thing you know it, the, the angel leads Peter out of jail. There's two guards right next to Peter, and there's a jail filled with guards, and the angel walks Peter outside. The whole time this is going on, the scripture tells us that Peter thinks he's dreaming. Peter thinks he's seeing a vision. He doesn't even believe it's naturally happening. But the angel walks Peter outside, gets him outside, and when the angel leaves Peter, Peter suddenly realizes, I'm not sleeping. I'm awake. Peter had been praying that he would be get out of jail, and he gets out of jail, and he doesn't believe it's happening. So what does Peter do? He goes to his friend's house where he knows there's an all-night prayer meeting. He gets to that house. He knocks on that door. The door's locked, apparently. A young girl answers the door by the name of Rhoda, and she's like, wow, it's Peter. She's so excited that Peter's there. They've been praying all night for him that she shuts the door and locks it, and she goes and says to all her family and friends, guess what? Peter's here. And what is their reaction? One translation says they looked at her and said, you're out of your mind. A more modern translation says they looked at her and they said, you're crazy. So what happens? Peter keeps knocking at the door. Finally, the, the, the people that are praying are like, all right, go to answer the door. And who's at the door? Peter. So interesting about this story. Everybody that's praying for Peter has no faith to believe that God's actually going to get Peter out of jail. And when they're told that Peter's out of jail, they're like, you're crazy. That's never going to happen. But the one person that was praying that actually believed Peter was going to get out of jail was a young girl. It was a child that believed Peter was actually set free from jail. But there's another character in this story that actually believed that Peter could get released from jail. And that's Herod. That's the evil king. That evil king was so convinced that God could sneak him out of the jail, he had Peter locked up in two sets of chains. He had a guard on each side of him. He had him locked in a jail cell, and he had guards all around the jail cell. Sometimes our enemy actually has more faith that God's going to move for us than actually we have. But Peter got out of jail. It's this beautiful story about, of, of rescue. But it's ultimately a big story about prayer and faith, two really big topics. As you know, we are in this whole series about discipleship, and so today I want to talk about prayer. I think we all know that prayer is a spiritual practice that needs to be part of our life. I think we all realize it, we all know that we need to pray, but at the same time, most of us feel guilty that I don't pray enough, 
and that I don't pray better or that I don't pray in a different way. And on top of that, we sometimes get really confused on how to talk to God. Sometimes we can pray, but after we get done with our wish list, we're like, ah, now what do I do? And to be honest, a lot of times we can be like Peter and his friends, and we kind of actually don't believe so much that prayer works. We know we're supposed to do it, but we don't really believe that it sometimes makes that big of a difference. When our prayers do get answered, we get all excited, we get all happy, and we have big faith in God. But when our prayers don't get answered, we often go down the path of thinking, okay, what did I do wrong? Or what's wrong with me? So it's easy to get discouraged when God doesn't ask your, answer your prayers. But I don't so much want to talk today about unanswered prayers. That's not really the point of today's message. But I want to talk today about what is the real purpose of prayer? I guess there's a lot of purposes to prayer, but what's one of, what's one of the main reasons that we pray? I want to talk about that topic today because, as you know, we're talking about spiritual formation. Spiritual formation is a process that we go through to become more like Christ. So we've been talking this, this, this whole year, and especially the last couple of weeks, about the various spiritual practices that we do that help us to become more like Christ. Last week we talked about rule of life. We talked about different rhythms that we do in our life to make us more like Christ. So today we're talking about prayer, specifically the purpose of prayer. Now I need to mention this principle again that I quote quite often from John Thompson, where he says, spiritual practices do not make you a Christian. They don't get you a relationship with God. Your spiritual practices really don't impress God. They don't make God like you more. But what spiritual practices are all about is getting into the presence of God. And when you get into the presence of God, that is where you find your transformation. That's why we're leaning so heavily on what are these various spiritual practices that we as followers of Jesus do. It's all about discipleship. There's things that we need to do on a daily basis or on a seasonal basis or on an occasional basis that we do because it gets us into the presence of God. And when we find ourselves in the presence of God, we experience change and we experience transformation. So prayer is often a practice that we do just to get us into the presence of God. And when we're in the presence of God, we see God change us. But this is one of the biggest problems with prayer. We tend to measure our success by visible results, even with prayer. We sometimes measure the effectiveness of prayer based on, did I get what I asked for, or am I getting what I asked for? So before we talk, hey buddy, you want to preach with me? He <laughs> said, so Maybe. It's a good message today. <laughs> All right. So before I talk more about the real purpose of prayer, I need to talk about the elephant in the room, which is one of our biggest obstacles to prayer. The biggest obstacle to prayer is often what? Discouragement. We often get discouraged in prayer because sometimes when our prayers aren't answered, we wonder, does prayer even work? Or we wonder, does it even make a difference if I pray or I don't pray? And often when we experience that, we sometimes stop praying. 
Or we pray just because we're supposed to, but we have no passion or expectation or even hope. See, one of the reasons we get discouraged in prayer is, well, it's because the promises of God in John, chapter, in the book of John. See, six times, that'd be six, six times in the book of John, God says very clearly, whatever you ask for in Jesus' name, it will be given to you. That sounds like a pretty good formula. I tag on in Jesus' name after each of my prayers, boom, I'm going to get what I want. I need my mortgage payment, Jesus' name, boom. But I think every one of us has experienced praying in the name of Jesus, and it doesn't happen as we would like it to happen. But six times, here, John 14, 13, you can ask for anything in my name and I will do it so that Son can bring glory to the Father. Next verse, yes, ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Next chapter, remain in me, I remain in you. Ask anything, it'll be granted. It says two other times the same thing. Ask in my name, it will be granted. Six times throughout the book of John, ask whatever you want in my name, you're going to get it. Now let's all be honest, it's kind of difficult to continue to pray in the name of Jesus when you pray in the name of Jesus, but it doesn't happen. Especially when you're praying for things that you think that has to be God's will. When you're praying for a sick child, you think, God, that has to be your will. Or you're praying about topics of racism or, or, or people being abused. You're like, that has to be God's will. God, you have to answer that. And when that doesn't happen, we get so discouraged. But this is something so interesting about the book of John. The book of John is a book all about living in relationship with God. It's all about abiding with God. So six times it says, whatever you ask in my name, you're going to get but 85 times the book says, trust in God. Trust in Jesus. Believe in God. That's interesting. It doesn't say 85 times, believe in prayer. It said, believe in God. Trust in God. But I'll be honest, sometimes it's hard to trust in God when you think your prayers are not being answered how you want them to be answered. Some of you know the story of Jairus and his daughter in Mark chapter 5. Jairus is the father of a daughter who comes very, very sick. And so he finds Jesus one day walking down a path. He stops Jesus and says, hey, would you please come to my house and pray for my daughter? She's very sick. And Jesus is like, sure, let's go to your house and pray. But on the way to their house, his daughter died. So Jairus' friends, they come to Jesus and say to Jesus, and uh, Jairus' friends, and they, they say to Jairus, they said, you know what? There's no more reason to have Jesus come to your house. Your daughter's died. I think sometimes we do that. We're like Jairus' friends. We're like, hey, your prayer's not been answered. You really don't need Jesus anymore. But fortunately, Jesus overheard the conversation. In Mark 5, verse 36, Jesus turns to Jairus and he says, don't be afraid, just have faith. In other words, just trust in me. It's an interesting answer that Jesus gave to this weeping father. You wonder, Jesus, why didn't you say to this guy, look, man, this is all going to work out. Now, let me tell you what's going to happen today. We're going to walk to your house. We'll probably get there in another hour. And when I get there, your daughter's going to be sick, or dead. Everybody's going to be crying. I'm going to walk up to her. I'm going to pray for her. She'll be resurrected. She'll be healed. We'll all have a nice lunch. So don't, don't cry anymore. You know, it's, I'm going to take care of her. He doesn't tell that to the dad. He doesn't tell the dad what's going to happen in the next three hours. Instead, he just says to the dad, you know what? Don't be afraid. Just have faith because I'm walking with you. 
It's a story that makes you think, you know, what Jesus is more concerned about is the faith of Jairus than Jairus getting exactly what he wants to need in prayer. Jesus is more interested in Jairus trusting in Jesus. Nevertheless, I can say with confidence that all prayer can have radical results. All prayer can produce radical results. I'm choosing my words very carefully and I'm speaking very slowly because I want you to hear what I'm saying, that all prayer is radical. Now when we use the word radical in our culture, in our society, we mean that something is very different. It's very extraordinary. It's very unusual. Radical means we didn't expect that to happen. Kind of like a fax machine at one point was pretty radical. Who thought you could put a piece of paper in that thing? And then email became pretty radical, like, wow. Then text messaging became really radical. And we watched some sports activities, and we're like, wow, that's radical. I didn't know that you could do that on a bicycle. So we use this word radical so often in our culture to mean that something is really extraordinary, something we didn't expect. So when I say to you that prayer is radical, you're kind of like, I don't really think so. But see, so often we're not using the right definition of the word radical. The word radical really doesn't mean what we think it means in our society today. See, the word radical comes from the Latin word radialis. The word radialis in Latin means roots. Roots. The word radialis, the word radical, it's all about the roots that grow underground. It's all about your root system. See, the, radical, the word radical has really nothing to do with what appears extraordinary. Radical is all about what is underneath that is radical, that gives life and substance to something. Radical is everything that's underground. And see, prayer is more about what is unseen than what is seen. But so often we measure prayer by can we see the results. Instead, prayer should be measured on what's happening in the soil of your life. What's happening in your life? What's happening to the roots in your life? Are you being grown as a Christian? And are you growing stronger and healthier because you are developing a root system? That's radical prayer, is when your roots are growing deeper. See, the followers of Jesus, life is all about growing your roots. That's why I like to say that church, really, we shouldn't use the word church, we should use the word grove. Because we are all trees that are in a grove and we're trying to grow deeper and deeper roots so that we have more and more faith and trust and confidence in God. But that's a problem with prayer. So often we measure it poorly. We measure it by what we can see instead of measuring it by what we can't see. That's why Jesus could look at Jairus and say, don't worry about it. Don't have any fear. Trust in me. In other ways, instead, why he wasn't telling Jairus what would happen the next two hours, because he wanted the roots in Jairus to grow a little bit deeper that day. Kind of wanted him to sweat it out a little bit so he could grow some deeper roots. 
See, prayer is mainly about communication with God, not about results. And sometimes you can't see communication. So I want to close today's message talking about a wonderful story in the book of Daniel. I actually talked about this story about a year ago, but I'm bringing out some different aspects of the story. Because there's five very, very important words in the book of Daniel. I think these are five of some of probably the most important words in the entire Bible. In Daniel chapter 3, verse 18, it says, but even if he doesn't, but even if he doesn't, see, these are powerful, powerful words. See, this is part of the story. The Old Testament book of Daniel is about Daniel, the prophet. Daniel has three friends that became known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Some of you know the story where King Nebuchadnezzar, he's about ready to throw Daniel's three friends into a fiery furnace for not bowing down and worshiping the golden gods that he had created. And how did these young men respond to Nebuchadnezzar when Nebuchadnezzar said, I'm going to throw you in the fire? In Daniel 3, verse 16, it tells us these three young men looked at the king and they said, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, We do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God who we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you have set up. That's an interesting prayer. First, they start out by saying, we have confidence that God is going to rescue us. We know that God is going to rescue us. And then they say, but even if he doesn't. You kind of read that and you're like, well, make up your mind. Either you think God's going to rescue you or you think God is not going to rescue you. You kind of wonder what's going on with these three guys. Are they being double-minded? Are they kind of unsure what's going to happen? See, what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were saying that day, they were saying, we are so strong and settled in our personal faith and our personal conviction that even if God doesn't do what we want him to do, it doesn't matter. These three men were saying, it doesn't matter how God answers this prayer request because we still know that God is a good father and that God is faithful and that God loves us, and God will take care of us, even if he doesn't do what we want him to do. These three young men were saying that their relationship with God is not determined by the future that they expect is going to happen. These three men have so much confidence in God that their circumstances don't matter. You could say these three young men plus Daniel lived a radical life because their roots are growing down pretty, pretty deep if they can stand outside of a furnace and say, and even if. See, Daniel and his three friends, they had a pretty rough life. They were young boys when uh, the nation of Jerusalem was taken captivity over by Babylon. Here, these four young boys, they were pretty innocent guys, but they ended up in captivity because of the sins of other people. These boys were pretty much innocent, but they are now in captivity because of the sins of their fathers and their mothers and people that have gone before them. So these four men, along with thousands of other people, are in captivity in Babylon. And these four young men have a unique problem. They're full of potential. 
And King Nebuchadnezzar, he can see these four young guys have so much potential, they have so much gifting, they have so much character, they have so much wisdom, that he looks at them and he thinks, I want them to be part of my leadership team. Once again, the enemy had eyes and designs on these four young boys saying, I want them to work for me because these guys are full of potential. So King Nebuchadnezzar knows it's not going to be easy to get these guys to swap over from worshiping God to worshiping my uh, golden calves or statues. So the first thing that the king did was he changed these boys' names. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not their birth names. They all had Hebrew names. But the king gave them new names. Why? Because he wanted to assimilate them into his culture. It's interesting that the king's name that he gave these boys... He gave them all girl names. He wanted to switch their identity. He wanted to confuse these boys of who they really were. But see, the next thing that the king did is that he invited these four young men to sit at his table and eat a meal at his table every day. Now you would think, wow, these guys are pretty lucky. They get to eat at the king's table. They get to get the best of the best of the best of the food. You think, wow, they're pretty lucky. They're pretty blessed. But there's two problems with eating at the king's table. Number one, the king's diet did not match their biblical diet that God gave to the Israelites. And second, all the food that the king served was food that was offered to the idols. So those four young boys, they pretty much knew they couldn't eat anything at the king's table. They knew that food was defiled, and if they ate that food, it would defile them. So in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, it says, Daniel and his friends it says, but Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and the wine given to them by the king. He asked the chief of staff for permission to not eat these unacceptable foods. That's pretty amazing that Daniel and his friends, they turned down the best food in the country and said, no, we're just going to eat some vegetables. Just have a glass of water and some vegetables and some bread. Because the boys knew that if they ate the food that the king gave them, they would become dependent on the king. And they knew that wasn't good to do. They knew that the vegetables probably would not taste as good as what the food that was served at the king's table. But what these four young men knew is that only what God offers you can satisfy you. They knew that anything at the king's table might taste good, it might be fun for a little while, but it would never satisfy them. That's why these three young boys could say in the midst of going into the furnace, but even if, it wasn't a lack of faith. It wasn't them saying God can't be trusted. It wasn't them saying God is not faithful. But I like what Tim Keller says. He says their confidence was actually in God, not in their limited understanding of what they thought he should do. Their confidence was God, not in their limited understanding of what they thought God should do at the time. These four men, they never doubted God. They only acknowledged that they really don't know the outcome. And that is okay to do. See, so often in our church world, sometimes we get a little confused on what to do when prayers don't get answered. Sometimes people like to say that if you have a big problem in your life, you have a big challenge in your life, then you need to find a promise of God in the scriptures. And then you find that promise and you claim that promise and you keep praying that promise until it happens. But guess what? If that prayer request isn't answered, then who's to blame? It's yourself. See, the problem with that line of thinking is just not biblical. 
that's just not a biblical pattern of how God answers prayer, that if you find a promise, you can hold on to it and you force God into doing it. That's just not how it works. But what we see in this story is three young men that they knew God would rescue them. Either God would rescue them from death or God would rescue them through death. These men knew no matter what happened, they would be rescued that day. They just didn't know how God was going to do it. That's important. That's important that we can stand back from our prayers and say, we prayed with passion, we prayed with fervency, we prayed with expectation, but now we can stand back and say, okay, God, I don't know how you're going to do it. But look how God did it in Daniel chapter 3, verse 19. Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that his face became distorted with rage. He commanded that the furnace be heated seven times hotter than usual. Then he ordered some of the strongest men in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to throw them into the blazing furnace. So they tied them up and threw them into the furnace, fully dressed in their pants, turbans, robes, and other garments. And because the king, in his anger, had demanded such a hot fire in the furnace, the flames killed the soldiers as they threw the three men in. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, securely tied, fell into the roaring flames. But suddenly, Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in amazement, and he exclaimed to his advisors, didn't we tie up these three men and throw them into the furnace? Yes, your majesty, we certainly did, they replied. Look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted, I see four men, unbound, walking around in the fire, unharmed, and the fourth looks like a god. If you'd have been there that day thousands of years ago watching this from a distance, you would have thought the story was pretty much over the minute the three guys were thrown into the fire. The fire is so hot that the guards that are throwing the guys in burn up on contact. You'd think it's over. You'd think that the prayers were never answered. Be a good time to go home and be a little bit discouraged. But that's not how the story ends. The story tells us that when the three men came out of the fire, they did not even smell like smoke. The only thing that happened to these three men in the fire is, number one, they saw Jesus. They're walking with Jesus. The second thing that happened is everything that was used to bind them out, bind them up, came undone. These men actually found freedom in the, in the fiery furnace. What the enemy had used to bind them up, burned off. Also, the enemies that threw them in the fire were destroyed as well. These men's prayer wasn't answered how you wanted it to be. But these three young men found deliverance in that furnace. They were set free from the bondages of the enemy. They're set free from the enemy that threw them in there, and they found Jesus in the furnace as well. That's a pretty good day. That's a pretty good story. It's not how they expected it to turn out, but God did rescue them through this situation. I think we all wonder how do we get to that place? where we can be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? How do we get to that place that we can have so much confidence that we can pray a big prayer and say, but even if, 
I'm good. How do we get to that place? I think sometimes we look for, okay, what do I need to do? What do I need to do next? How can I make my prayer life a little bit better that I get to that place? I don't think it's a matter of doing more in your prayer life. I think the question that needs to be asked is, who are you leaning on when you're praying? Who are you leaning on? It's an interesting story in the book of, well, the Gospels tells us, but in the book of John, tells us about the last night when Jesus was having a meal with his disciples. The last night he'd have a meal with them before he went to the cross. You know that story, we talked about that last week, if you're here, where Jesus says he's going to wash his disciples' feet, and Peter's like, no, you don't have to do mine. But after Jesus convinces them, no, this is a plan, I'm going to wash your feet, he washes everybody's feet, and he gets done with washing their feet. And in John 13, 21, it says, after Jesus got done washing everybody's feet, it says Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And he said to his disciples, very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. Jesus had known for several chapters earlier that he would be betrayed. But this is news to all of his disciples. Who's going to betray him? Not only is it news, but also they're seeing that Jesus is troubled in spirit. They don't expect that from Jesus. So they're all wondering what is going to happen. They're all nervous. They're all upset. What's happening? They have a lot of questions. And I love what the Apostle John does in this story. In the NASB translation, it says, the Apostle John, lying back on Jesus' chest, was one of his disciples who Jesus loved. In the 25th verse, it says, then John simply leaned back on Jesus' chest and said to him, Lord, who is it? I think that's a pretty good picture of prayer. John wasn't just sitting across from the table from Jesus and saying, hey, who is it? Who did it? Who's going to do it? But instead, John leaned his entire body onto Jesus and said, who is it? It's a posture of a child saying, I need your security. I need your comfort right now. Who's, who, who's going to do it? See, I think sometimes in prayer we forget to lean. I think sometimes in prayer we lean on our own understanding instead of leaning on Jesus who's there for us. I think sometimes our prayer life can become a little routine where we know, okay, I got to thank God and I got a few requests and then a little filler and then we'll be done. And you kind of wonder sometimes, how do I lean on Jesus because he's not here in person? It's easy for me to lean on a person, whether they're right there, but how do you lean on Jesus when he's not in the room with you? I want to encourage some of you to, uh, well, all of you, in your prayer life, maybe sometimes it needs to be expanded a little bit. When you pray to God, do you ever stop and say, hey, I want to tell you about my day today? Have you ever just stopped and said, Jesus, I, I, I had a rough day. I want to just talk to you about it. Or have you ever talked to Jesus about what excites you? This is what I like to journal. I like to journal what I'm excited about, what I'm hopeful for. And I just journal my little list and while I'm talking to Jesus and saying, hey, 
I'm kind of submitting to you this to you. I mean, am I out of am I out of my mind with these things? But then I also like to journal, what am I afraid of? What scares me right now? A lot of us carry a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety and a lot of doubt and confusion. And I think especially now, I think you just watch the news for a hot second. I think a lot of us don't know all the fear and anxiety we're carrying until you sit down and maybe make a list while you're talking to Jesus, saying, hey, I want to tell you what makes me scared today. I find when I do that, my list gets pretty long quickly. I usually don't know there's a list until I sit down and make the list, and then I lean on Jesus while I'm doing it. I think sometimes that's the way you lean on Jesus, get beyond just your prayer request. But lean on him with your fears and your doubts and your anxieties, but also your goals and what you're grateful for, but also about what discourages you. Today we're taking communion together, and it's a reminder that we're no different from the disciples that were with Jesus back in the book of John. That Jesus invites us to the table with him to have a meal with him. And it's a beautiful picture about the relationship that Jesus wants to have with us. All through the Old Testament, to sit at a meal was a sign of a covenant relationship. And that's what we're invited to do today, to remind ourselves about our covenant relationship that we have with God. The word remember has more to do with just remembering what happened in the past, but remember is a good word that helps us to remind us of what God would do in the future. A very popular word when Jesus talked about communion was, do this in remembrance of me. Do this while you're remembering what I've done in the past that's going to encourage you that I'm going to keep doing it in the future. Does everybody in the room have one of these? Does anybody need one? Y'all got one? Jerry, do you have one? All right. Otherwise, Beck, all right, you're good. So today we are invited to lean on Jesus. We're invited to be at that table and to lean on Jesus like the Apostle John did. First thing we're going to do is peel back this top layer, get to this little wafer. It's a little bit of a, you're going to have to lean on Jesus for that one. And we take this little wafer. tricky, isn't it? She didn't have all bifocals with these. But this little wafer reminds us of the body of Jesus. That not only was his body broken for us, but his body is with us. That he is here. That he's tangible for us to lean on. So let's take this bread today reminding us that we can lean on Jesus. Then we can peel back the second layer. You get to the grapefruit juice. <clears throat> oh, this is hard. There. Y'all doing pretty good out there.
Y'all got it. And then we're going to take the grape juice, reminding it was the blood of Jesus that was poured out for us for forgiveness of sins, but also the restoration. Let me close in prayer before Greg and the team come up. Father, we thank you today for this meal. We thank you, Lord, that we can sit at a table with you, that we can be in your presence, that we can tell you about our day, we can tell you about our hopes, we can tell you about our fears. But Lord, just like you walked with Jairus, Lord, we thank you that you walk with us. Just like you were with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, that you are in the furnace with us as well. Lord, help us to be the people that can pray, but even if he doesn't. Help us to be the people that we are so strong and confident in our relationship with you that it doesn't even matter how you answer our prayers. God, I pray that we would be people of prayer that have roots that grow very, very deep. God, I pray that we would all be radical. Radical in our root system. Lord, may each of us have roots that grow deep. May each of us have roots that are healthy and that are strong and can withstand wind and fire and, and anything that would be thrown against them. God, we thank you for the gift of your son. We thank you for the gift of the inheritance that you have for us. And Lord, I just pray today, Lord, that each of us would experience a new measure of your grace and your comfort today. In Jesus' name. Amen.